Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Hello, everybody. We are with you today to discuss wine topics that we found in the wine world. And daily, we post them on our Facebook page. And weekly, we do an, another newsletter that we post on our Facebook page. And from that, we find interesting articles that we share with you. But during the week, we also Google our own things and like to discuss them first with you. So, Kim, what did you Google this week? I had to Google about a specific wine from from central France. My friend was taking a vacation week in Paris, and throughout the entire week, she was snapping pictures of bottles of wine and wine lists and menus and, uh, and texting them to me so that I could uh, either give her recommendations or kind of give my thoughts on things. Uh, so there was a fantastic, she said, bottle of sparkling wine from the Loire Valley that she had texted over to me, and I was looking to see see if it was available in Massachusetts. And unfortunately, it's not. But it is imported into New York. So there might be a road trip in my future to find some uh, some bubbly from uh, Vouvray. So that was what I looked up this week. What about you? Well, she can find that online, I'm sure. To, mm. to tra- so it was a Cremant. It was a Cremant. Cremant from Lebanon. Yep. Nice. We've talked about that in the past. So for me, Kim, I had a wine presented to me, and the winemaker note said that it was aged in Czechoslovakian oak. Ooh. So we've always talked about American oak, French oak. I've heard... Well, that's close to Hungary, and Hungarian yeah, oak Hungarian is big. Hungarian oak. Yeah. I've heard of acacia oak. I've heard of Oregon oak. But this was the first wine I've ever run into with Czechoslovakian oak. So I just wanted to actually make sure sure there was Czechoslovakian. <laughs> they weren't pulling the wool right. over your eyes. Yeah, so that was what I googled this week. Our first article today is for the foodies out there, and Kim is definitely the biggest foodie I know, from Michelin.com, how to pair wine with sushi. And this was one article, we just started to talk about it together here, and Kim said she had an issue, and I said, I, I'm taking this another issue. So we're interested to hear feedback on this. Mm. So my my issue with this article wasn't necessarily the recommendations that they were giving, but at the beginning, they state that traditionally, sake and sushi have been paired together. And from other things that I've read, that is not actually the case. That the pairing of sushi and sake is a relatively new phenomenon, like new within the last 15 years, 20 years, because sake is made from rice and sushi often has a rice component to it as well. And in Japanese culinary culture, you don't put rice with rice. It's just too much rice. So sake is usually reserved either for drinking on its own or for dishes that are not based on rice. So other things would have been consumed with sushi and with maki rolls and with other things that we tend to find in Japanese restaurants. But that sake and sushi are not really a food and wine pairing that has ever really been put together. So that was really my only thing with this. That And they kind of mentioned that at the beginning of this article. I'm like, no, 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 no. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's not right. So no sake with rice dishes because it's just too much rice. Well, let's get this out right away, Kim. You're you're obviously a sushi eater. I like sushi. Okay, so uh, you know me. I, yes, you're I'm not a sushi not eater. Not a sushi guy. No. So number one, 
that's that was my take. I went kind of a different direction. <laughs> but when you said rice, not with rice, I mean, I have rice with mashed potatoes. So, I mean, I go heavy, heavy. All right, right? Mr. Carb over here. Let's talk about the sake. I'm glad you brought that up first because my experience I've seen with sushi restaurants is they do sell sake. Do you, so is it an Americanized beverage of choice for for sushi? I think so. You think? Okay. Yeah. So is that why what I see on, on sakis that they sell is not Japanese sake mostly. It's bulk American-made mm-hmm. sake. Yep. So, so either made in California or made in Washington. From what I picked up from some other readings that I was doing was that as Japanese foods started to be a little bit more accepted into American culinary mainstream, you know, you kind of had one-stop shopping where if you had a Japanese restaurant, you also wanted to stock some Japanese beverages as well. So everything kind of got put together. It'd be like if you had an Italian grocery store and you were selling Italian groceries from all over Italy, that's not something that you would have seen in Italy. Like you wouldn't have seen Sicilian products being sold in Milan. Like that just wouldn't happen. So I think that something similar was happening here where, you know, if you had all of the products from the entire country kind of fit into one place. Therefore, got your sake and your sushi and your hibachi and your, you know, other dishes all kind of cheek by jowl. So not that they were necessarily meant to go together, but that culturally they were all kind of being fit into one place. So is there a Japanese beverage of choice, alcoholic beverage of choice to pair with sushi? I don't know. I don't I, I, I don't, don't think so. I, I don't but... think so traditionally, no. And that kind of opens up the, the door for wine. As we sort of internationalize a lot of wines and find that, oh, wine does go with this cuisine that it never had traditionally been paired with before, we're finding some very pleasant matches. So I think that's one of the exciting things about, it's not necessarily fusion cuisine, but sort of globalization and how are we going to experiment a little bit and find that, hey, this wine goes really well with with this food, even though 25, 30 years ago, you never would have seen these things put together. That's where I was hoping we were going to go with this article. (laughs) Because, I mean, they talked very detailed, the the raw versions, the cooked versions of what they were in detail, the types. But I wanted to focus more on wine when you go to a sushi restaurant. So you having gone, do you see wine lists at sushi restaurants. Yes. And I often see that the wine list is more extensive than the sake list, which, you know, obviously I I think is probably a good thing. But I've not, unless it's a high-end Japanese restaurant, I don't tend to see that the wine lists are fantastic, honestly. So you're also, I mean, you're also familiar with uh, fish restaurants. The list, is it comparable to if you went to a standard seafood restaurant? Mm, Not really. I think that there's much more emphasis placed on the food and not necessarily a lot of attention paid to the wine list. Yeah. Unless it's a really high-end Japanese restaurant who then, maybe they have a beverage manager who is very into thinking about the wines and pairing the wines with the foods and making sure that there are wines on the list for people who understand wine and want to drink nicer nicer wines on the list. Um, That was where I wanted to go Yeah, Here in the the burbs, I'm not necessarily seeing... I'm glad you 
said that because one of the things I like to do before I go to a restaurant is look at the menu online. Mm -hmm. And you'll see lunch menu, dinner menu, wine menu, wine list. Every local sushi place I Googled on this had no wine list online. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking to myself... They do sell wine because I've been to a few of them. That's why I was asking you, do they have a list? So why would they... I mean, if they're Americanizing the sake, why not start giving some what Sauvignon Blanc something that goes with seafood to get people interested in food and wine pairing. Well, they they generally do. They'll have a Sauvignon Blanc. They'll every sushi restaurant that I've been to has a Riesling on the wine list, but it's usually more commercial brands, well, not necessarily the, the best. Stuff. Why don't they have true Japanese special selections or different types? They just do the bulk. I mean, they profit-wise, they could make more money. It would make mm-hmm. it more interesting to go there. I mean, if you could only find a certain type of beverage there, I just don't, I didn't understand it. I don't know. Oh, well, I mean, you, you can kind of level that criticism on a lot of different restaurants, right? You know, yeah, different, not, I, not every restaurant pays a lot of attention to its wine list. You know, you go to a lot of, especially sort of not fast casual, but casual family restaurants, sit down restaurants, of course, but a lot of commercially produced wines that you can find pretty much everywhere that are not very exciting and might all be just from one distributor because they're trying to keep it simple and you know not have to put a lot of thought into it. I don't know. It makes it harder for those of us that really do like wine and want to uh, you know drink something interesting and not just the the same old stuff. So do you typically order wine when you go to a sushi restaurant? It depends on my mood. Sometimes I will. Sometimes I'll order beer. Probably 50% of the time I'll be beer? drinking beer. Is it Japanese beer? Yeah. <laughs> Japanese beer, Chinese beer, and then and this last time that I went out, I actually ordered a sparkling sake to drink with my hibachi because we tend to go out either for hibachi or for sushi. And luckily, I have kids who love both. So that's that makes dining a lot easier when you have an eight-year-old and a 10-year-old who like to eat that stuff. So that's pretty cool. So yeah, I did sparkling sake last time. Your kids that have was explored fun. food more in their life than I have in, in my 52 years. Yeah, I so like to joke that, that my eight-year-old eats better than my uh, 42-year-old brother. So did you think, I mean, we're not going to cover all the different types, but I, I think for our listeners, I this there's, there's variations of wines you can get at these these sushi restaurants. Yeah. Philosophically, I liked where they were going with their wine recommendations. So I especially find th- that sushi, because if you were dealing with a lot of the raw fish dishes, they have they have a lot of, of fatty fishes. So like tuna is a fatty fish. Raw salmon has texture that sort of coats your palate with fat. And you need wines with significant cleansing acidity to go with the those dishes. So a lot of these wine recommendations from this article tended to focus on lower alcohol, somewhat lighter wines with acid that would cut through the fat of the fish. And that is something that I always like to look for, which is why when I go to a sushi restaurant and I do have wine, I tend to choose light, bright Sauvignon Blancs, Rieslings, like you said before, or sparkling wine to go with my meal. And, you know, that is kind of what I focus on for food and wine pairings anyway, especially when you've got something that, again, has that fattiness to it. You want something with bright acidity. It can be somewhat sweet or it can be dry. Like, that's up to you. But 
acid is what is important. Yeah, they stress that. And we talked about tuna and salmon in the past. Mm -hmm. It's pretty traditional pairings with the, they mentioned rosés a lot because of the acidity. And some of the dishes are a little bit heavier, so you can go a little bit heavier. Sometimes those tuna dishes go fantastic with a light red, you know, Pinot Noirs or something from from Italy. Um, Dolcetto is great with those kinds of things too. So it doesn't necessarily have to be like, oh, I have to drink a certain style of wine if I eat these foods. It's like, well, kind of, sort of, but drink with what, drink what you like. You are a red wine drinker. Still drink your red wines, but move them towards the lighter end of the spectrum. Bubbles are great with everything. Rosé is pretty great with everything. So those are pretty safe bets, I think, when you're exploring a new cuisine that maybe you've never had before. But again, especially if you're in a restaurant that does have a somewhat thoughtful and interesting wine list, you know, you can, you can try things and hopefully someone there has chosen that wine list with some thought and some care towards what the wines are going to be like with the food. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark and Kim. You can find more information about Mark at his website, franklinlickers.com, and more about myself at vinitaswineworks.com. And for past episodes of this show, please find us on iTunes at The Wonderful World of Wine. A publication that we often get a lot of our articles from uh, is local to Napa Valley. It's the Napa Valley Register. And I really like this publication because it gives us a little bit of insight into our probably most famous wine growing region in the US. And this one that caught my eye was about how White Zinfandel saved Napa Valley wine, which I thought was a really catchy title. And it delves a little bit into the history of Napa Valley, which I am very interested in at the moment. And it was all about how the creation of White Zinfandel, which, you know, now has become a little bit passe, but how this style of wine, when it was invented in the 1970s, really had quite an impact on on California wine growing. Yeah, so like you said, Kim, 1972, mm-hmm. White Zinfandel, and everybody's probably heard of the producer Sutter Home, which is now owned by Trinchero, which is a big corporation. But interesting story about it. And I always heard this story and was amazed that they had the opportunity to trademark White Zinfandel, and they didn't. So mm-hmm. now everybody Everybody else jumped on the bandwagon. So I think they're probably kicking themselves for that. Right. So what a lot of people don't know is that Zinfandel, the grape, is actually a red grape. So Zinfandel is a a specific variety of grape, just like Cabernet is a grape, Chardonnay is a grape. Zinfandel is also a grape. Um, And it's a very deeply colored, big, fruity red that if you were to make it into a red wine, like a lot of producers in California do, you end up with a big, jammy, often high alcohol, very powerful, fruity red wine. And it really is known as the native grape of California. It's not necessarily native to California, but California is pretty much the only place in the world where Zinfandel as Zinfandel is grown. And often, especially in the early days of Napa Valley, it was grown as a blending grape because it is, you know, has all this power and and it, it gives good structure to wines. So it was used as a blending grape. Then a lot of experimental wine growers were really trying to figure out how they could make a real fine wine, kind of Cabernet style wine out of it. And one of the winemakers at Sutter Home, uh, his name was Bob Trinquero, and there is a Trinquero family uh, that makes wine and labels wine under their own brand. 
in the early 1970s, what he was trying to do was he was trying to make the style of his Zinfandel more powerful by bleeding off some of the juice. Uh, we see this these days in a particular production method for rosé called the Sanyi method, which literally means bleeding. So the, the red wine will start to be made and after like a day, they'll bleed off some of the juice and then the rest of it stays in contact with the skins and stuff. So you have less liquid to more solids and that makes a more powerful style of red wine. But then you have all this leftover pink stuff that you're like, okay, well, I don't want to throw out this juice. What am I going to do with it? So then they would continue to ferment that and make a rosé wine. And then eventually when they were making it, a little bit of sugar remained in the wine. So what they were left with was a slightly sweet, slightly pink, not super high alcohol rosé wine, which was pretty tasty. And they began labeling it as White Zinfandel. And it was an immediate marketing success. I thought what was interesting in this camp, like you mentioned first, they, they drain off the juice and they were marking it as a as a white wine and they called it some Swiss rosé name. Do you remember what it was? It was like Oldie. It's, per, uh, I can't pronounce it correctly, or, um, but it translates as Eye of, Eye of the Partridge, I believe. So they wanted to, they sent this to the but, TTB for the label and the TTB said, you cannot use that because it is a Swiss wine term mm-hmm. protected. You can't use it. So that because was there the is first a style of wine in Europe that has this name on it. So they weren't allowed to use that name. Also, yeah. it looks incredibly European. <laughs> it was foreign origin. They said you can't yeah. use it. So, but it was selling as a as basically a dry white made from a red grape. And then, like you said, they had a fermentation issue with too much sugar that they thought was bad. But they still sold it, and people loved it. Yeah. So I, I thought it was puzzling that they made a huge mistake in the fermentation and still sold it. They it said, was- well we're still selling this and there were, yeah they it. were like all of these things that had to happen just right in order for this to be created like the idea of bleeding off some of the juice to do something different with their actual Zinfandel it's like okay well that was a winemaking decision that Bob Trincaro had to make and you know he didn't have to go that down that route but he did and he had to decide oh I'm going to do something with this leftover juice and then you know a couple of years later they had to have that stuck fermentation where yeah usually that's a that's a problem in the wine and they decided like, hey, you know, we're just going to run with it. I mean, very economical. Also, you know, you don't want to throw out your hard grown grapes. That's that's money out the door. So, yeah, the fact that they just kind of was like, all right, anyway. you know, yeah. let's just bottle it and put a label on it and see what happens. And you have to look at the timing of this, too. In the 70s, the American wine consumer was buying Lancers, Leaf Brown Milk. They were buying sweet wines. And now this hits the shelves and they're like an American sweet wine. Yeah. So they, it was perfect timing for a mistake. Yeah. And it's interesting because at this point, this is when American wine drinkers palates were actually starting to veer into drier wines. Traditionally, especially right after Prohibition, American wine drinkers were drinking sweet wines through the 50s, the 60s, bulk production, pretty cheap inexpensive wines that had some real significant sweetness to them. And it was really only in the 1970s that palates started to appreciate slightly drier wines. And White Zin almost seems like it was a bridge. You know, it wasn't as sweet as what people had been drinking before, but it's also not as dry as we're fairly used to drinking these days. So it really was this sort of transition wine, I think, for a lot of people. And as we transitioned into the 1980s, this was 
the wine that really got a lot of people starting to drink wine. And oftentimes when people learn to drink a new beverage, you start with something that does have some sweetness to it. You know, you don't start drinking cocktails with a dry martini. You're probably starting with a Cosmo, (laughs) something that has some sweetness, some fruitiness to it. And then eventually as your palate changes, you're going to move into something that is drier, higher alcohol as your tastes change. And the same exact thing happens with wine. So White Zin, I actually think for people is, you need something to start with. So I have no problem with people starting with something like this or Moscato Diasti or somewhat sweet Rieslings. It's a progression and it's and it's a, a learning experience. So hooray for White Zinfandel for getting so many people, Americans especially, interested in fine wine. Well, they're saying this White Zin saved the actual Red yeah, Zin grape because Zinfandel. they needed to grow so much of it. Yep. So Kim, let's play a game where you always say, <laughs> if you like this, you'll also like this. Ah, so okay. if you like White Zinfandel, you mentioned a few white grapes but there are also a lot of other sweet pink versions of grapes out there we have white merlot which is similar sweetness but maybe not as sweet as white zin but it's an alternative what do you think is a reason and i said this in the past i get in trouble but when i a customer of mine buys white zin it tends to be a certain age group i don't know why do you do you associate i know you you're not like you don't associate like i do mm-hmm. but it seems like it's an older generation and it, so uh, is that because they started liking it in the 70s and they still like it why do you think it's an i think older, so is that, I, yeah think? i think that it's it's familiar it's comfortable it's comforting it's what you've always drunk and and why change frankly you know if you have a favorite and you don't put as much thought and effort into it as we do you know obviously for you it's just a a bottle that you have in the fridge and when you feel like a glass of wine that's what you're going to have and it gets a bad it gets such a bad rap in the wine room have you ever have you ever tried it lately of course do you ever remember going to a wine professional tasting where you've had it no but i've but I've drunk a fair bit with my mom. See? <laughs> so. Well, yeah, you. <laughs> I'm trying to think of, I mean, I've never had it offered no, to me I don't in think any I've classes ever, or nope. education, but I wanted to experiment myself with it. And it's it's mind-blowing I when have, you're used to certain styles. I have done a white Zinfandel tasting. I don't remember where I did it, but I remember do, having a tasting of a lineup of like six different white Zinfandels to just compare the different producers. I think it was back when I was working retail. I don't remember exactly, but There was a yeah. trend going around where they were making what they called high higher end white uh-huh. Zinfandels to try to get the the everyday white Zin person yeah. to step up to a different quality. So they would be, it would be try? like $15 yeah, white Zinfandel. Yeah, different price point, yeah. you know, less, they were saying maybe less production, maybe. They kind of tanked. That was not a successful, yeah. yeah no, I never saw them. Wanna, mm-hmm. I, I saw it was trending, but I've never seen them hit the shelves. Yeah. I've never seen them offered. I don't even know if they're still out there. And now what I'm seeing is rosé, like traditional method rosé being made from Zinfandel. So there, the name of the grape is right there on the bottle, but it doesn't say white Zinfandel. It will say rosé of Zinfandel. It, it's dry. It's because it's dry. So a good rule of thumb that I tell for people, if you like, you know, if you like slightly sweet pink wines and you want to make sure that you are getting a pink wine that has some residual sugar in it and you're not stuck with one of those Provencal rosés that 
if you close your eyes, they taste like a dry white wine. Look at the difference between the words blush and the words rosé. If it does say rosé on the label, chances are it is on that drier side of things. But if it is saying that it is white something or it is blush wine, chances are you've got some residual sugar in there. So those might be more the ones that you should gravitate towards if you like those sweeter styles. I think one of the good things I've seen, Kim, on this is a lot of white Zinfandel producers are considered bulk producers, major amounts of wine. And I've not seen where they've sourced from outside the U.S. Mm -hmm. For instance, box wines of Chardonnay, or they can come from all over the world, Australia, Chile. But I've never seen a white Zin bulk producer in a box or a big jug that is not California. Well, there aren't too many other places that grow Zinfandel. Yeah. So don't you think it's interesting that they don't have to reach out someplace to yeah. say... Well, there's, uh, so, obviously, there's a lot of Zinfandel being grown in California. Uh, and like this article was saying, because there was this increased demand for white Zinfandel through the late 70s and the early 80s, it saved a lot of those good Zin vineyards that maybe otherwise would have been torn up and planted with Cabernet, planted with Chardonnay. But uh, the, the heritage of California grape varieties was kind of saved by this style of wine that is often poo-pooed by wine professionals. But if you look at these older vines of Zinfandel, Zinfandel that are still there that are 70, 80 years old because Zin is one of those grape varieties that their older vines actually are still fairly productive. And when you have an older grapevine, it produces fewer grapes, but better quality grapes, like more concentrated flavor and, and just wonderful things going on there. So now we're lucky in that we have producers who are producing really good old vine red Zinfandel that maybe otherwise those grapevines would have been pulled up. So yeah. I should have checked before we discussed this, but I'm curious in the 70s how much Zinfandel was grown in Napa mm. versus now, because I'm sure they're sourcing out yeah. and using... Well, like Lodi is sort of the, the place where a lot of good Zin is grown these days, and, and I'm fairly certain that it, the grapevines where the white Zinfandel is coming from are probably more in areas that aren't really known for real fine wine. Yeah, they're using the the Napa properties probably for cab. They're getting right. more money for for that type of right. stuff. So, but yeah, I, I would assume it went way down. So when they said it saved your interpretation, of me was like, well, yeah, they, it was a good name for them, but I don't know if it saved Zinfandel from Napa, right? I mean, it probably got rid of it. There is, I know, know there is still <laughs> some Zinfandel in Napa Valley, but as wine growers and winemakers in California got a little bit more experience, they started figuring out, okay, this region is better for this grape variety and this place is better for this grape variety. So that's a, that's a work in progress. America and California specifically still has a very, very young wine industry. I mean, we're really only talking since the 1960s for our fine wine industry in California. So it's a work in progress and there's still a lot of experimentation. And I think we're lucky that we have some interesting great varieties that we can call our own. Did you have food with your mom in the white Zinfandel? <laughs> I don't remember. So I wonder if it's chips or I'm just curious if you, you don't remember. No, no? I don't know. I'm thinking a, a few, few foods work yeah, with you it. Know. You know, a little sweetness. Potato chips. Yeah. Uh... Sweet snap. <laughs> Thank you for listening to The Wonderful World of Wine this week. We are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lenzi. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine and also on iTunes at The Wonderful World of Wine. Cheers. Cheers.